0: Don't seem like we're going to be able to get two chapters in a row, two weeks in a row in Esther, does it? We missed last week because of the meeting. We're in Esther chapter 4, and so that's where we're going to be, Esther chapter 4. Tonight we come to a pivotal section in the book of Esther. Uh, Man, y'all are quiet. Everything okay? Everybody Everybody all right? Okay. As we walked through the first three chapters, we noted that um, we noted a lot of things that some people don't realize about the story of Esther. Uh, It's not a love story. It's not a a Cinderella finding her prince story. In fact, it's it's the opposite of that. Uh, We also saw that the author of Esther doesn't present Esther and Mordecai as examples of faith for us to follow. Not yet, anyway. So, through the first three chapters, they're presented as Jews living in Persia in exile, living in the capital city of Susa, who are compromising, who are hiding in the culture of Persia. They're hiding their Jewish heritage. Mordecai even tells Esther not to tell anyone that she's Jewish. And in order to hide your Jewishness in Persia, in this uh, pagan culture, in Susa, the capital... Um, it meant that you didn't observe the food laws of Moses. You didn't observe the Sabbath. To do any of those things would reveal that you're Jewish. They would give you away. So they were hiding their Jewishness. They were hiding their uh, their heritage. Uh, not only that, but Mordecai, I mean, we notice some things as we walk through those chapters. Mordecai doesn't seem to flinch at all when Esther is among the women who are taken to you know, go to the king's bed to try out to be queen, you know. Uh, We talked about um, how he has raised her like a father and what kind of father would be that way. And she marries a pagan king, seemingly like as she goes in. Remember the story, some of you may not have been here, but I'm trying to recap that she seemingly went in with the intent to please the king, like wanting to know what makes him happy and asking the eunuch, there what should i wear to go into the and so what we see in esther and mordecai are people trying to live in two worlds uh inwardly there's no doubt they believe in god they're jewish by heritage by nature by religion but outwardly they're they're trying as hard as they can to live as persians and then in chapter three something happened that causes mordecai to come out of the shadows and reveal his jewish heritage what happened Haman. Haman. What did Haman do? He was upset, that Mordecai would have made an homage to him, so he wanted him to do it. Right. All of his people. Right. That's exactly right. So King, just to recap the story, the king elevated Haman, the Agagite, and commanded all the king's servants to bow down to him, and Mordecai refused. Why is it important that Haman is called an Agagite? Remember? Who is Agag? Yeah, he was an Amalekite, Am, Am, one of them kings, one of them people's kings in Saul's time. We saw in Mordecai's genealogy, he is a descendant of Saul. Haman then is a descendant of this king who who Saul refused to kill, and Samuel came and killed. They all know the story. They blame each other. God said, "Do not forget that the Amalekites are your enemies." And uh, so when this guy shows up, an Amalekite uh, uh, descendant descendant of Agag. Uh, Mordecai, that's the last straw. I'm not bowing down to this guy. I'm not bowing down to him. And this is just too much for him to take. So he refuses to bow down while all these other people are bowing down. And he's, a couple of guys asked him, like, what are you doing? Why aren't you bowing down? Why are you defying the king's order? And he tells them simply, the only thing we're told in the text in chapter 3 was, I can't, I'm Jewish. That's all he tells us. So they, uh, they go and they tell Haman this this man, Mordecai, this Jew, refuses to bow down to you to see if his words would stand. And Haman decides, okay, instead of just putting Mordecai to death for his rebelliousness, Haman decides, I'm going to put all the Jews to death all over the provinces, all over the Persian Empire. And we talked about the fact that he, we think, I think, it's a, just a, a supposition, he does that because he also knows the history of Agag and the Amalekites and the Israelites, and he sees his opportunity here to destroy the people that killed his ancestor and uh, and defeated his people. So he decides to go to the king, uh, the king, and, and tell them, Look, we're gonna, we want this, we want, I want all these people killed, and I want all of this, uh, goes to the king, that sends out a decree that on a certain day, chosen by Lot, that all the people, all the Jewish people of Persia, Uh, We'll be killed by all the people of Persia. And we saw, we left off in chapter 3 was that on the day the decree was sent out, we're told the date, and the day that the decree was sent out was the day before the Passover. And so now what that means, going into chapter 4, is the conflict of the book is laid out. It's not about a love story. It's not about you know her finding her prince or her. You know, it's not. It's nothing about that. It's about God thwarting uh, a, the destruction of His people through unlikely circumstances, namely through Esther. The conflict now is laid out. The destruction of God's people, the Jewish nation Israel, through all of Persia, is now decreed. And it's been decreed by the most powerful empire on the planet. And we saw that in chapter 1 and chapter 2. The king's word can't be contradicted. It can't be rescinded. Even he can't stop a royal decree once it has been made. So the die is cast. The ball is in motion. There is no power on earth that can stop the destruction of the Jews because the decree has been sent. But we, we will see that the destruction is stopped not by a power on earth but by God who has made a covenant with his people. God has promised his people covenant protection from destruction to bring them back to the land, all of those things. And so really the the quintessential question here now that we know what the conflict is, we see what the problem is, we see the destruction decree given by the most powerful nation on the planet at the time. Will God keep his covenant? Is God's word more powerful than the mighty Persian empire? That's really the question as the Jews are celebrating Passover yesterday a decree went out saying a year from now 11 months from now you are all going to die and they're going to celebrate Passover and that question had to have been rattling around in their mind is God gonna deliver us is God as we celebrate the covenant the Passover the deliverance from Egypt is he gonna deliver us from Persia now and of course we find that God does deliver his people And he is more powerful than the Persian Empire. But the way that God delivers them is not through plagues and thunder and fire and earthquakes. The way that he delivers them is through what? I know it's Esther, but what's the word we call God working through everyday events? Providence. 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 He's going to work through the everyday, ordinary decisions and actions of people. And he's already been working to prepare them for this threat. There won't be any miracles. There won't be any supernatural plagues. Their deliverance is going to come as all these events that have happened and taken place converge to accomplish his will. And in the process, Esther is going to have to choose if she will follow God's will or if she will protect her own life and her own comfort. And this is where we see, chapter 4, we see Esther come from... You know what we've seen is she's a woman living in two worlds, a woman woman taking the path of least resistance, hiding her Jewish ethnicity. And here in this we see a change where she takes the reins and she says, "No, I'm I'm going to be I'm going to be who God has called me to be and I'm going to stand for what God's will is." And so we see a change in her. All right, any questions, comments about the context before we move on? Sweet All right, so when we left off, the decree had been sent. All the Jews are going to die on a certain day and a certain month. It was about 11 months out when the decree was sent out. And um, it said, Haman and the king, the last thing we looked at in chapter 3, if you look in your Bible, the last verse in chapter 3 was Haman and the king, they sat down to drink, and the whole city, the whole city of Susa was in confusion. They were in confusion because all of a sudden a whole people group is decreed to die and the persons themselves are decreed to be the killers and to take their property. So as we pick up in chapter 4, what we see is Mordecai's response to this decree and... And we see the Jews' response to this decree all over the empire. So let's read verse 1 and 2. It says, When Mordecai learned of learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. What does it mean to be in sackcloth and ashes? Mourning. Grief. It's a demonstration of your sorrow of your sometimes repentance, uh, but it is a demonstration of in this case of course it's it's mourning and his grief and his sorrow he's wailing, it says, I mean all the way through the city went into the midst of the city, he's crying out with a loud voice, he doesn't care who hears it. he's walking through the midst of the city with this bitter, bitter cry, and it says he He uh, 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 tore his clothes. What is that? He ripped them. Yeah. Rending your garments. What does that mean? Anybody know? What it signed? Sorrow. Sorrow. Grief. Outrage. A lot of different reasons why. And ripping your clothes was a sign of outrage and grief and sorrow and all those things, not just for the Jews, but all through the ancient world. Uh, the historian Herodotus talks about the Persians ripping their garments uh, in grief when they were defeated at the, by the Greeks at the Battle of Salamis. So the Persians in the city would have known this is a, this is a picture of grief, outrage, sorrow. And he's loud loudly crying through the city, mourning, grieving, wailing. Um, and he's not hiding it at all. But when he comes to the king's gate, he stops and doesn't go in. Why? He couldn't go. But why couldn't he go? Because he was clothed in sackcloth. He was staying Yeah. No one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Do you? He might have disturbed the king's party. Yeah. Yeah. That's a- That was that was really one of the reasons that this this law was passed was that the king doesn't want anybody around him that's sad and mournful, wants to be joyful all the time. um, Do you remember what Haman told the king was the reason why all the Jews needed to die? They didn't obey his laws. They didn't obey his laws. But here, Mordecai, in the midst of his grief, in the midst of his sorrow, wailing, what does he do? He obeys the king's laws. And so we see the untruth of what Haman, we already knew it, but we see the untruth of it. Even in his deep grief, even in his mourning, he obeys, he obeys the law. Now, throughout, the, throughout this, this book, we've, we've seen God moving and working in all the events. And God's providence is unmistakable from the very beginning when Vashti refuses to go in to her being banished from the kingdom so that this horrible decree went out that they were going to try out all these women to be the new king, to Esther coming and, you know, happening to find favor with the king. and We just see all of these events that that are just God's providential hand working even in the bad things that are going on. And now it's led to God's providence, God's hand, has led to the absolute... um, Suffering, grief, mourning, crying, weeping, bitterness of Mordecai. Sometimes God's providence and His working all things for His purpose leads to leads to bitter suffering for His people, and it's for a good reason. We know that there's good that's going to come out of this. We know that God is moving these things so that He will save the people, uh, but oftentimes we have to endure some suffering. Not understanding where God's purpose is, is leading, where, where it's heading. And not only did Mordecai uh, crying and weeping, but all the Jews throughout the whole Persian Empire. Remember, the whole Persian Empire went from, I mean, all the way from, from Egypt to India. You know, it's like this is most of the known world. They, they, they had conquered all of the regions of, of Babylon. And so they were, they were just, they were the big boy on the block. It says in every province, wherever the king's command, his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So not just wasn't well, just Mordecai who says, "Oh, this is terrible," and this is. Grievous, and he's weeping and grieving and crying. It was all of the Jews, all over the Persian Empire. So you've got a whole nation, a whole uh, uh, a whole group of people um, that are in mourning because of this decree. And we know because we know the story, and we know how it's going to play out, and we know all the events. We know that God has been moving all the pieces and working all things for His providence. But this has led to some severe warning. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? We talked about this a little last time, but just imagine for a minute. You're, You're preparing for Passover. You're preparing. Tomorrow is Passover, and we're going to celebrate. We're going to have the Seder meal. We're going to kill the lamb. We're going to tell the story of the Exodus. We're going to celebrate God's deliverance. We're going to celebrate God's covenant, how he defeated the greatest empire on the planet in Egypt miraculously and brought us out, and you're going to tell all these stories. And the day before, as you're making preparation, here comes a decree that says the reigning heavyweight champ empire of the world is going to kill you on such and such a day. There was, I mean, you can imagine, you can imagine the morning, the grief. You're sitting, you're a father, a Jewish father, sitting across your children at the Seder meal. And your job is to tell the story, your job is to pass the cup and to, to do the elements of the Seder meal. And you're looking at your children going, 11 months from now, they're all going to die unless God intervenes. And so they're weeping, they're lamenting, they're mourning. Uh, It's interesting. I don't know how far I want to go with this because I'm not sure of the connection, Uh, but many people have observed that those three words, uh, fasting, weeping, and lamenting, sometimes translated mourning, um, they occur all through the Old Testament for sure. But together... It seems that they only, and this is what I read, so if it's not true, it's, it, it may not be true, but I read this. Those three words only occur together in one other place, and that's in Joel chapter 2 verse 12 and 14, where it says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, lamenting, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Rend to the Lord, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows, which is the same thing Mordecai is going to say to Esther, who knows whether you've been for such a time as this, whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Many people have noted and taken note that the, the weeping and the mourning and the way it's phrased in the book of Esther may be pointing to this um, a prophecy of Joel where it's not just showing, oh, the people are grieving, oh, the people are mourning, but it's showing them. Rending their hearts and not their garments, returning to the Lord, doing, doing the work of repentance. Uh, not the work of repentance, but repenting, not just in grief because disaster is coming, but turning back to the Lord. Many people have, have observed that. I'm not exactly sure if that's a connection I'm willing to make, but it was very interesting to me. Uh, and so I thought I, would, I thought I would tell you the language is very, very similar. Y'all with me? Questions, comments? So very well could be that the rending of the garments, sackcloth and ashes, the weeping, lamenting, and mourning is not just Israel all over the provinces just grieving because of bad things fixing to happen, but grieving and turning back to the Lord. It very well could be. The rest of this chapter is uh, interaction, communication between Mordecai and Esther. And it happens through uh, intermediaries, through eunuchs. Esther's in the palace, Mordecai won't go past the gate. So it says, When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathak, One of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to uh, attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Now, very strange. Esther obviously doesn't know about the decree, she doesn't know what the king had ordered. She's in the palace and she's insulated, evidently, from all of the events outside. So all of the people in all of the provinces, in all of the cities of the Persian Empire know what's happening, but Esther does not. She is in her, she's secluded, she's in her palace, she's enjoying the comforts of the palace. I don't know what she's doing, but she's in there. And word comes to her that Mordecai, her relative, is at the king's gate wailing and crying and grieving and mourning, uh, wearing sackcloth and ashes. And I don't know why, maybe y'all can help me with this. She does not first ask, why are you grieving? She first just sends clothes to him to change out of your sackcloth. You know, she, uh, she, she seems to be grieved that he's grieved and sends clothes. Uh, doesn't know why. Sends something. For, why do you think she does that before asking what's wrong? Yeah, that's a very popular theory, and I, I don't have anything to disagree with that. Uh, Lyle said he, she sent him clothes to take off the sackcloth so he could come into the king's gate and talk to her. And that's, that's super plausible. That very well could be. Very well could be. Why doesn't he accept them? I, I don't know either. I'm just asking. Huh? he's in mourning and he refuses to take off his mourning clothes, his grieving clothes. I, I, don't, I don't see any reason to dispute that either. And, well, At that time, he didn't know what was going on. I mean, he didn't know what was coming up. Uh, how this thing was all coming again. What do you mean? Well, he didn't know what Oh, I see what you mean. So you mean like he wasn't, he, in his mind, he didn't know what was going to happen or how it was going to happen. He was just grieving before God, praying and, and repenting and uh, repenting, but you know what I mean, mourning and, and, and laying his heart out before God. And he refused to take off the sackcloth because he refused to not be laying his heart out before God and pleading for the people. Yeah, okay. I see that. Okay. Now we don't know what she was thinking but I'm inclined to think maybe she just wanted him to come in. He says, nope, I'm not taking my stuff off. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to stay here. And then Esther called for the eunuch. Go down there and find out what's wrong. What this is and why that he's doing this. Um, So in verse 6 through 8, Mordecai tells the eunuch what happened. Hathak went to Mordecai to open, uh, in the open square of the city, sorry in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction and that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her, this is what he wants her to do, to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Mordecai once again has shown us I mean this is a very resourceful guy he's shown us he's got some good insider information from somewhere not only does he know of the decree everybody knows of the decree not only does he have a copy of the decree which was probably very easy to get he also knows how much money Haman had offered to pay the king I wonder how he knew that any idea? any guess? I have no idea other than he just might have known people in the court yep Service talk, yeah. So he knew all about the plan. He knew all about why it had happened. He knew who was in charge. He knew Haman had done it, not the king. Remember, it's the king's seal on the decree, but he knew it was Haman's hand behind it all. He even knew how much money that Haman had offered the king. We saw the king turn it down the last time. Gives a copy to the decree, and he tells Esther what he wants her to do. He wants her to go in and beg the king's favor and plead with him on behalf of First time he says, her people. Now this is quite a reversal. From the beginning, what had Mordecai told Esther about her Jewish heritage? Don't tell nobody. Hide it. Don't let anybody know that you're Jewish. And it doesn't say this in the text in the first four chapters, but I think Mordecai was hiding his as well, and then when forced to bow down to Haman, it was too much, and, and he... he He came to a point where I'm either going to identify with my people, God's people, or I'm going to identify with the Persians. And he chose to identify with the Jews and revealed his identity. He's the one who told her to hide her Jewish identity and hide who her people was. Now he tells her to go into the king for her people. Mordecai is clearly indicating that the time for hiding her identity is over. She is in Of all the people in the whole empire, she is in the position to be an instrument of the Lord. But to do so is going to cost her or could cost her deeply. She's going to have to put herself at risk. She's going to have to give up her comfort. She's going to have to potentially give up her life in order to be the instrument that God has placed her here to be. Now, we know what Esther's going to do, right? So you know the story. She's, she's going to do it, and she's going to set it all aside and go into the king. But we often fail to realize just how difficult a choice this is. So Esther doesn't just say, okay, I'll go in. I'll do what I, I'll do what I need to do. And assume that it's her duty to try and save Israel. Instead, she gives Mordecai the reasons why she can't do what he asks. So the eunuch comes back and tells her what he says. And then Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say this. Listen to what she tells him to say. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, Esther says, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days a month. She says, everybody knows the law, Mordecai. To go into the king without being summoned meant death. Unless he himself stops it by holding out his scepter and allowing them to come forward. This law was put in place by the first king of Media. Um, and there were only seven men. We saw them at the beginning in chapter 1. Seven men of the king's court who were permitted to see, it says, that to to behold the face of the king, meaning they could come in without a summons. They were his counselors, those kind of things. Everyone else in the whole entire kingdom, servants, the queen herself, everybody had to request an audience with the king through the servants, through the eunuchs, through these these people that uh, would speak to the the seven men uh, and then await the invitation for the king to say, okay, you can come on in. And if the king never sent the invitation, you didn't go in. You didn't get an audience. And to do so meant death. So Esther tells Mordecai, everybody knows the law. I can't just go in there. I will die if I go in there. And then she adds, I haven't been summoned for a month. I haven't been summoned before the king for 30 days. So look at this picture here for just a second. Haman, the evil Haman... He has access to the king. He is one of those. Second in charge, we saw that. He has access to the king. Esther the queen does not have access to the king. And she didn't expect to see the king anytime soon. He hasn't summoned her for 30 days, which is another indication this is not a love story. Okay? Do you think the king has been without companionship for 30 days? Got a whole harem full of people. Esther and King Ahasuerus, Xerxes, they did not live happily ever after. In fact, it seems like Xerxes' passion for Esther kind of cooled. He hasn't (laughs) called her in 30 days. Doesn't seem like he's as obsessed with Esther as he once was. So she's telling Mordecai, listen, I can't see him. I can't go in there. If I try, I'll die. And there's no way he's calling me. He hadn't called me in a month. She is in a tough spot here. And we often fail to realize what a tough, there are no good options for her. You know, but God has brought all this to pass. And God's providence is calling for her and his people, us, in our providential circumstances to be faithful to his will, regardless of the cost. Regardless of what it costs you, we're to be faithful to his word, to what he's called us to do, to where he has placed us. In verse 12, it says, And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Esther says she can't go. Says she's going to die. Said the king is not called her in a month and there ain't nothing she can do. They told Mordecai. And Mordecai said these famous words, probably the most famous in the book of Esther. He says, told them, do not think, he's telling Esther, do not think to yourself. That in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For, listen, this is very important. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Then he says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, by Esther's comments, it sounds like she's thinking about saving her own life. I can't go in there. You know that's the law. He hasn't called me in a month. Mordecai tells her that her position as queen, her standing, her, what she has received, what she's been given in the palace of Persia is not going to protect her when it all comes down. In fact, this is very, very striking. He says... That you tell her if she fails to act, and God is assumed in all this. It'll arise from another place. He means God. He says, you won't, you won't survive. He means God will judge you. He says, who knows if you've been brought to the kingdom for this time, meaning God puts you here. God is assumed all through this. though The word God, the name God, is not mentioned. It's assumed all through this. He tells her that her position as queen in the palace of Persia will not protect her if she does not follow the will of God. In fact, he tells her that if she fails to act, the Jews themselves will be delivered anyway. God made a promise. God's going to keep his promise. And if you refuse to act, God's going to bring deliverance from another way. But you and your father's house, because you've disobeyed the Lord, you'll perish. In fact, he tells her if she, if she fails to act, it's going to be her and her father's house that will perish. Who's left in Esther's father's house? Mordecai. <laughs> We're going to die. God will raise up salvation some other way. But even when that happens, Esther, your doom is certain. We often try to protect ourselves by defying God's word, God's will, God's way. But it always leads to more harm. It always, it always in this case, of course, he's saying better to risk death than stand before the Lord, and not have been faithful. Better to risk death and stand before the Lord faithful than to hide in the comfort of the palace, insulated, where you don't even know that the decree to kill all your people has gone forth. Now, although God's not mentioned anywhere, like I said, Mordecai clearly, clearly has a deep conviction: God's in control in the details of their lives and the details of this nation. Deliverance is going to come to the Jews. He believes God's going to keep his covenant and he's going to deliver the Jews. But he also reminds Esther that there's no such thing as neutral. You can't stand on the sidelines when God has placed you in a position to enact his will, to be an instrument in his hand. You will either obey God or you will not. Mordecai flatly tells her out, it's time time for you to reveal yourself for who you are. It's time for you to decide if you will identify with God's people, your people, he says her people in the earlier text, if you will identify with them and follow the will of the Lord or if you will remain living as part of the world, remain living and hiding as part of the Persian culture. Mordecai also says that you know, it may be, who knows, he says, God has placed you here For this situation, for this moment, for you to be faithful to his will in your life. Now that's an astounding statement, don't you think? Think about all of the bad things that have happened. God's providence has moved all through those things. Uh, Esther being taken from her home, put into the harem. God's providence has worked in Mordecai's decisions to allow Esther to be taken. He could have ran away. We saw that before. God worked in Queen Vashti's decision to not come before the, the drunken party and get banished. God worked in the evil decision of his counselors to banish the queen. And God worked in the horrendously evil decision to have a a woman contest to see who the next queen is, so that Esther would be elevated to this position. God moved in all of these things to deliver his people from a threat that they didn't even know existed yet. And now Esther, who is not, by any means so far in this book, a paragon of virtue or faith, she's been put in a place where she can be used mightily by God and all she has to do is risk everything (laughs) and obey. Now she finds herself between a rock and a hard place. Think about this. Many don't ever consider this, but her life is in jeopardy regardless of what choice she makes. There are no good options here. None. And there's no way out. If she goes into the king unannounced and he doesn't receive her, she dies. If she goes into the king unannounced and he receives her and he try, she tries to get favor with him and he refuses, she dies and all the people die. If she goes into the king and reveals who she is, tries to seek favor from the king, and he relents and says, Okay, I'm not going to kill the Jews She may have saved her people, but now everyone would know that she's Jewish and she has not been living according to the law of Moses and according to the word of God. She doesn't have any good options. She'd be be revealing her cowardice, her deceit, her hiding her Jewish faith, failing to live as God called. There are no good options here. So Esther, after a life of living in two different worlds... She has to choose who she's going to be. And it may cost me my life. It may cost me everything. But at this point, she's going to identify herself with God and with her people. She's going to follow the Lord's will as best she knows how and put herself at risk to do his will in the face of whatever consequences come. Verse 15 through 17, last verses we'll read. It says this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days. She's calling for a fast, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then she says, Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him. The whole story of Esther so far has been Esther, this woman, had, uh, uh, had, Hadatha. Yeah, I always can't remember that. I always want to call her Hattie because Hattie's running around out here. The whole story of this Jewish woman, of Esther, has been about a woman who is controlled by her circumstances. She's been passive in the story all the way up to now. She's followed the path of least resistance. Whatever works the best, whatever's the easiest, whatever I can get away with, simply all the way up to, what should I wear in there to please the king in his bedroom? You know, the path of least resistance. She has been saturated in the culture of Persia, doing whatever's easiest. Now, she will take responsibility for the life that God gave her. She will take responsibility for the place where God put her and this horrible circumstance that God has placed her in where there are no good options. And the option she chooses out of no good options at all is to obey God's will. That's the only thing that she can do. And from here on out, from this point, from verse this section, 15 through 17 in chapter 4, from here on out in the rest of the book, This is the last time that Mordecai gives Esther a command. From here on out, Esther's the one giving the commands. Esther's the one making the plans. Esther's the one getting the feasts together. Esther's the one deciding how things are going to work and and orchestrating the things to get Haman hung and to do all these things. This is the last time. You see this turn in Esther here where she's no longer passive, she's no longer going with the flow, she's no longer following the path of least resistance. She chooses at this moment to live for God, to risk her life for what God's will is, even if it destroys her. And from this moment on in the story, she is the active subject of this story. And Mordecai takes his commands from her. Mordecai then went away, and he did everything as Esther ordered him. She called for a fast. And the Jews of the city in Susa, they're going to fast for three days. And all Esther and my women servants will also fast for three days. Why? Why doesn't she just say, okay, I'm going to go on. You're right. I choose to follow God. I'm going to go on into the king. I'll see you. Why does she say, I'm going to wait three days. We're going to fast for three days and then I'll go. What are they doing? They put God first. Yeah, I think that they're preparing themselves, they're praying, they're, they're seeking God's will. A fast is, is denying yourself some comfort, some need, so that you can focus on God, so you can focus on his will, so you can uh, commune with him. And so that's what she does. She says, if I'm going to go into the king, it's amazing that God's name is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther, but his hand is all over it. M- Mordecai knows God's going to deliver. Mordecai knows you've been brought to this place by God to do this. And now Esther knows God has got to help me if I'm going to make this decision. So I'm going to spend three days fasting. You tell all the people to fast and pray. And then I'll go into the king. And she says, if I perish, I perish. What decision has she just made? I mean, practically, we know she's going into the king. But in her mind... What has she just, I don't know how to ask the question. What uh, resolute decision has she made? Huh? To follow God. To follow God. I'm going to. Huh? No matter what it takes. No matter what it takes. The The sacrifice, if that's what God calls. Better to lose my life and be faithful than to protect myself and be unfaithful. Better to perish. Better to die. Because it's undeniable God's brought me to this place. It's undeniable God brought me here to such a time as this. It's undeniable that I am the only person in the empire with uh, the means and the opportunity to be an instrument of God for the people of God, to, for God to, um, for God to uh, protect his covenant and fulfill his covenant promise. And she says, I can't, I can't not obey God. And if I die, I die. If I, listen, if I, she's saying, listen, if, if I go in, she's also saying, it's not written here, this is maybe just coming out of my brain, but she's also saying, if I go in and he relents and I save the people, that means they're all going to know I've been hiding this whole time and I've been unfaithful this whole time. And if that's the case, okay. I'm going to do what God has called me to do, what God's word says to do, what God's will says to do, where God has put me. And it doesn't matter what the consequences are. You think she's happy? Woo, all right, I'm going in. And if I die, I die. It's all good. No, no, I guarantee you. I mean, I don't know. It's not written. She's crying. She's weeping. She's wailing. She's praying. She's fasting. She's... I can't do this, God. I, I, I don't know how I'm going to be able to keep your word. I don't know how I'm going to be able to live this out. I don't know how I'm going to walk in there when I know that it's going to be my death. I don't know how I'm going to be... I'm sure all of that is going on. And that's why she calls for a fast. I need, I need your help. I need God to be with me. I need God to strengthen me. I need God to comfort me because I can't obey you on my own. I can't do what needs to be done. So what we see here is a woman who has overcome herself in order to do what God has called and positioned her to do. This is a different Esther than what we've seen in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And God has, this is also my opinion, so I, God has providentially backed her into a corner and taken away all options, taken away all Avenues for her to get out of this situation, or and he's asked the question, Are you going to follow my will or not? Are you going to do what I've called you to do or not? For such a time as this, you've been placed here. What are you going to do? One author I read quoted this, and then we'll go. It says, Regardless of the straits you find yourself in, turn to the Lord, rend your heart, not your garment. Fast, weep, and mourn, and return, return to the Lord your God. His purposes are greater than yours, and who knows? Perhaps you have come to your present situation for such a time as this. Any questions, comments? Yes. I think she might have been feeling the relief you feel when you're convicted and you finally get it, you know, get it right and turn it over to him. Okay, everybody hear that? She said... She thinks that she might have been feeling the relief that you get when the turmoil and the conviction is going on, and you finally just turn it over to him. Very, very possible. There's joy for when you obey the Lord. Think about happiness. Yeah, yeah. She said, "There's joy when you obey the Lord. It may not be happiness, but there is a joy." Anybody else? Yes. So there's a couple of viewpoints. Uh, she asked if, if Mordecai believed that deliverance would come f- to the Jews from some other place, how could he say that Esther and her father's household would still perish? Uh, there's a couple of views. One view, and I, I had a hard time, I, I kind of studied this week, but I have a hard time buying into this one, is that Mordecai himself was threatening Esther, saying, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill you. Uh, I, have a, I have a hard time with that one. I don't think that that's the case, um, but I think that um, I think that I don't know what was in Mordecai's mind, but I think he was, uh, in essence, calling down the judgment of God upon her, um, and whatever whatever means that happened that came, I don't know that I don't know. It doesn't say in the text, so I can't know if. He, he thinks that the king's going to kill her or that Haman's going to kill her or any of those things, but he's just he's calling down that you won't escape God's judgment even if you do, even if the uh, deliverance arises from somewhere else for the Jews. That's really the best I can do because I'm not sure that it tells me in the text. Any other questions? All right, let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, uh, Esther is not... Esther has not been an example for us to follow, but in this chapter, God, you moved in her heart, and she becomes a quintessential example for us to follow. God, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to your word. We pray that you would help us to be faithful even in the hard, providential circumstances where you place us. Uh, God, for we know that you are in control, and you are working all things for the good of those who love you. Um, As Mordecai, Esther, and all of the people in this story at this point they don't see how things can happen. They don't see what's going to happen. They don't see all of the things that you're going to use, the everyday events of, of life to, um, to humble Haman, to execute Haman, to, to have your will done among, the, among your people. But God, we know because we know the story. Help us to trust that we don't know in our own lives what's coming around the corner next week or next month or in the six months. Uh, all we can do is be faithful today. All we can do is be faithful to where you've called us and what you've called us to do today. So, God, I pray that you would help us because just as Esther, we can't do it in our own strength. God, we need you. And so help us to commune with you. Help us to pray. Help us to seek your will and your word. Uh, God, help us to be led by the Spirit as we, uh, as we seek to be faithful to you. It's, uh, it's impossible in our own strength, but in your power, in, in your might, and in your will, God, we can... Uh, we can stand faithful. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who ultimately is perfectly faithful, in whom we're united and we're seen as faithful when we trust in him and are saved by the gospel. So, God, we, uh, uh, we, we trust in that, and we know that it's not our faithfulness or our works or our decisions, God, that make us right with you. But we have a, we have a high priest who has made atonement for us. And God, we want, to, we want to be faithful to you as we grow in who you've made us to be. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.